Okay, everybody, welcome to another edition of the Big Questions with Big John. This is your host, Big John. And as always, another interesting guest for conversation in this episode. Uh, let me introduce to you to Professor Fred T. Golder. Uh, Fred is a professor of law, an adjunct professor of law at Massachusetts School of Law. And he yes. teaches courses in labor and employment law and also uh, for alternative dispute resolution, which is what we'll be talking about today. Uh, he has a book out called Reaching Common Ground, a comprehensive guide to conflict resolution, which you could see in, on his bookshelf behind him. But <laughs> if you want to do more than just see it on his bookshelf, go to Amazon.com. You could order it there. Uh, so welcome, everyone, to Mrs., uh, Professor uh, Golder or Fred Golder. How are you doing today, Professor? I'm fine, John. Uh, I, I tell you that uh, I've been teaching and practicing conflict resolution now for over 25 years. Mm. And about... 2015, 2016, I started to wonder, and I started to say, what is going on with all the polarization that's going on around? Right. And so I started to do some very extensive research into the scientific basis of the why of conflict. Mm. And I was fortunate to have some of the most brilliant people assist me, uh, suggest books to read, so for about five and a half, six years, I've been doing research, uh, looking into genetics, looking wow. into uh, <laughs> evolution, looking into psychology, personality, motivation, and to really understand it so that by understanding the reasons for the polarization, I could at least start to work toward finding some good solutions. Wow. All right. So you've got me hooked on, in a lot of different ways already. Uh, uh, first of all, I love that you mentioned genetics and research and all that. Uh, my, my educational background is in biology, educational uh, and evolutionary biology and, and human genetics. So you've got me hooked right there. Uh, and also, uh, obviously, very much involved in what's happening in the country, both politically and philosophically, in terms of, um, I'd love to, uh, I, I don't even know where to begin with you, Professor, because you've got, you've set my mind off already in so many different directions. So let's start off with the basic one. Uh, the country does seem, the US does seem to be highly polarized. I would say not, I won't say today, but it's been highly polarized, I would say for at least to my sort of recollection, maybe the past 20 years. Um, and it only seems to be getting worse. It seems to be intensifying more and more. Now, my particular take on it, it's due to our more and more desiring to be part of identity politics, that we belong to groups rather than see ourselves as individuals. Um, but that's just my sort of theory. Like, please tell me, according to your research, uh, what is uh, what is the cause of our polarization of, 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 of the, the what seems to be almost irreconcilable differences uh, in our country these days? Well, uh, first of all, uh, we talked a little bit about genetics. And mm -hmm. I will tell you, and, and this is very, very strange. Uh, one of my colleagues was very helpful in giving me information, teaches at, the, uh, at New York University. And there's actually a genetic difference between people who lean left and right. Mm, I've I know heard it that, sounds yeah. strange, but if you think about it, 
if you understand psychology, we have the big five mm -hmm. uh, major traits. And some of those traits correspond to how people think politically. So there is a, an important genetic difference. Uh, and my theory is the reason we've become more polarized over the last 20 years is because we now have an internet. And the internet gives us the opportunity to basically co collaborate with people who already think like we do. So for example, if you happen to be very conservative, there are internet groups that you can go to and they confirm what you already believe. So the confirmation bias has an impact on where you search out your information. And I see that as one of the, re the leading reasons for the polarization, that you really have an opportunity to stick to one uh, particular ideology and not accept any ideology. So if it doesn't comport to your opinions that right. you've developed over your lifetime, you basically don't consider it. And mm. you only accept those things that uh, support your opinions that you already had before you started uh, the process. Right, right. And, you know, I've often heard that, that, for example, uh, conserv people who lean conservative tend to be more rigid. They tend to respect order. They tend to like to categorize things very strictly. Whereas those who, who used to, by the classic def definition of a liberal um, uh, or, or leftist, uh, would be that those who like to change things up to, to create change, they were the more uh, perhaps entrepreneurial sorts. But uh, it's interesting to me because what you just said to me is, is a little bit foreign. For example, I love to use the internet to seek out people of the opposite opinion, uh, whether it's to just get into discussion or to learn more about it. But that's also interesting to me, for example, because I'm a libertarian. Um, I tend to just be more in terms of individuals as opposed to groups. Um, so I, I hold the individual in much higher regard than I do the community, the state, the nation, right? And so, so it's interesting to me, like, how does that play into your research? Or was there a carve out for people who are more, I don't want to say independent minded, but say the libertarians or the, um, I wasn't, I was going to say perhaps the anarchists or, 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 or people of that sort who, who kind of reject authority. Like, how do they play? Do they contribute to the polarization? Are they the most affected by it because they see everyone around them being uh, forming tribes against them, so to speak? How, how do you, how do they, if, if any, how do they fit into this model? I think the libertarians are really in a different category or class. Uh, I think the libertarians uh, tend to be more suspicious about fixed ideas. They're more open to different ideas. And that's one of the big five traits when you're talking about psychology, uh, that people are open to new ideas and not likely uh, to be in, uh, how shall we say, if, you're, if you have an open mind, you're more likely to be liberal. If you have a closed mind, you're more likely to be uh, in one side or the other in terms of you either a blue or a red. Right, right. Uh, and, and they've actually done some studies about how blues and reds their moral foundation. Hmm. For example, they found in the studies that blues rely primarily on care, fairness, and liberty. That's their moral foundation. So everything that 
they look at and they have a lens. We all have a filtering lens that we look at the sure. world. It's not the real world, but it's the way we perceive it. Gotcha. And it doesn't really matter. That's mm -hmm. what they see is what they think is real and not necessarily. So that's that's an interesting. Uh, there's reality, then there's the perception of reality, um, but but it still doesn't sort of address why. Do you, so you, so you feel if I got your initial thing that it's really the internet that's intensified these differences because look, there's always been liberals, there's always been conservatives. Um, I, I remember, look, I grew up in New York City, a very you know a bastion of liberal politics. And I remember growing up back then conservative, you know, in that, and, and, I've, and wondering why I was different than everybody else, right? At least from that thought perspective, right? I don't mean to make it sound too tragic. No. But also I've noticed right now that the traditional definitions of what was liberal and what was conservative seem to be all jumbled up now. And I think that has to do more with the blind acceptance of the tribe, of the identity politics. For example, Growing up, even as a conservative in a liberal town, the one thing I always respected about the blues, as you put them, was their defense of free speech. You know, I remember them defending the Nazis to march, uh, their, their right to march in Skokie uh, in the late 70s. And I always found that to be a very, um, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, admirable uh, trade, even though they I didn't agree with the rest of their philosophy, because I said free speech is the foundation of progress. So I, you know, but now I look at it and I see that the blues, so to speak, at, in many ways are, are not supporters of free speech because you have uh, the, the trigger words, you have uh, uh, the, you know, the, the hate speech, quote unquote. Um, I've heard a lot of progressives say like they don't believe in the First Amendment anymore in terms of free speech. And on the other hand, conservatives who used to be what I viewed their best quality would be like a free market. And all of a sudden they're, you know, they're for currency manipulation and for tariffs and subsidies and things that were an anathema, say to the Milton Friedman's of the world 25, 30 years ago. Where did, where did this juxtaposition come from, Professor? Because it seems to me that it's polarization, but it seems to also be in a tempest, right? It's, it's the polarization and the switching. I don't know what the bearings are anymore. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, okay? We have a tendency to label things. Mm. So, for example, if I, if I label, for, if you supported Trump, for example, I might label you as conservative, but there may be only one thing you voted for Trump. Maybe right. you voted for him because you didn't like the other candidate. So mm -hmm. the point is, when someone says, I voted for Trump, you automatically have this whole idea. You've got the stereotypical notion of what it means to vote for Trump. Right. You must think, my God, this person is insane. How can you <laughs> vote for something? He's crazy. He's a and you right. go on and on talk about it. But he might be a dark triad personality. So if you say I supported Trump, it doesn't mean anything except you supported Trump. But we have a tendency to stereotype. So if you say you supported Trump it must mean that you're really conservative. On the other hand, if you say, I supported Hillary Clinton, it says a whole bunch of it, and it may have nothing to do with anything except I just happen to like him better. And I might right. not necessarily be in, the, in that category of conservative or liberal. And that's what's, going, that's what's really happening. Uh, you've got some conservative people that uh, for, for whatever the reason, uh, I'm not conservative the way we used to know it right. 20 years ago. You're, I agree with you 100% on that. Yeah, yeah, 
it's 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 fascinating to me that you seem to have both which sounds what I'm about to say sounds contradictory it's almost increased rigidity and increased uh turmoil it it seems to be um I kind of picture it like a steel container that is very rigid in its form, but within the container, you've got craziness going on. Things are bouncing off the walls. And that's sort of the way I view it right now. I don't know if you view it the same way, whereas um, I've talked to friends of mine. Um, and like I said, as a libertarian, I had no horse in the race in terms of Trump, Clinton, Biden, you know, like none of those. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but in talking to people that I've known for a long time, both on the left and the right, for example, um, in New York, I had traditional Democratic friends who were like the typical what I would call old school Democrats, you know, like pro-union, but not necessarily what you would consider the 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 radical left, for lack of a better term. But all of a sudden they were supporting it, you know, because, you know what, we can't let this guy Trump get in. So I'm supporting the AOCs and the Bernies, even though in my own philosophy, I don't believe in socialism. I don't believe in this. I don't believe in that. And then on the right, People in New York, Republicans, conservatives who grew up hating Trump because he was a, he used to walk around proudly saying he was a New York Democrat, right? And he used to hang out with the Clintons and all that famously. Well, why are you supporting him? Oh, well, he's a Republican and, you know, we can't have Clinton come in. And all of a sudden I said to myself, okay, I almost can, in my mind, do the cognitive dissonance to say, this is what you believe and this is what you're voting for, even though I don't abide by that. But I can understand when people do it. But then the second time around, to still stick to it almost seems um, like self-flagellation at some point, right? I mean, okay, you voted for X because you thought they were better than Y, but the second time around when X has not proven to align to your personality or your your core beliefs, why stick with X? Is it just because he belongs to your tribe? Yeah, You, you get put into a bucket and sometimes it's difficult to break away. We have a psychological thing. If we start down a road and we go down that road, we discard anything mm. except. So what happens is it becomes, uh, gee, I, I, I supported Trump, so how can I not support Trump? So you rationalize. We have a wonderful way of rationalizing. Well, why are you supporting Trump now? Because, and you go A, B, C, D. <laughs> Logic and rational has nothing to do with it. You're emotionally tied, and the emotion really controls what your brain does. Have you read, um, if you haven't read uh, one of my colleagues, Adam Grant, his book? Mm, I have not, no. It's an interesting book. And Kahneman wrote a great book about thinking fast and slow. So we oftentimes make decisions emotionally. That's brain one or system one, as they call it. And it's because the system one brain has essentially allowed us to evolve from 200,000 years ago to today. It kept us alive because we reacted. Right. Because if we had to think rationally and logically about every decision we had to make 200,000 years, we never, we never had people come to the next generation. We were dead. So the the brain one, our system one, was our emotion. And system two is something which is developed Mm. after system one. So we're really almost controlled by our system one until we sort of be mindful about it and say, hey, wait a second. 
this doesn't make any sense. You know, I'm emotionally tied to it. But right. now when I start to think about it rationally, when I take the time to think okay. about it rationally, it doesn't make any sense. But a lot of times, instead of saying, you know, I made a mistake, they just keep going down the road, right. they keep rationalizing and explaining things that really have no explanation. It's almost like religion, John. Right. Right. I believe. I right. believe. What, why do you believe? And which is fine. But there's no rational basis for having faith. There's no rational basis for supporting the conservative, the liberal, the reds and the blues. And it's, as you said, it's become who knows what, you know, you label and you get yourself into a lot of trouble. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I think I, I, I was listening to a talk by Dr. Peterson, Dr. You know, Jordan Peterson, and yes. he, he classified it. He gave a good sort of empirical example. He said, listen, if you're in business and you want to shake things up, you want an entrepreneur, man, you want someone who isn't afraid to fail 10 times before they hit the one big idea. And those tend to be, generally speaking, the people who are high in openness, as you mentioned, as part of their one of those five basic personality traits, they're very, um, you know, they tend to be very agreeable. But if you have something that works, you don't want a company of Elon Musk's. You want a company of conservatives because they will keep the ship going. They'll keep it on course. They'll keep making money for you. And that's why typically, you know, growing up, what was the conservative response to, to a career? Get a job at a bank, get a job at an insurance company those things never change right and we'll always need them whereas if you were an entrepreneur you were like oh i want to make the next great widget how do I, well i may have to go through 10 companies 10 iterations before i hit my one big idea right um and it's interesting to me the personalities that become good entrepreneurs and the personalities that become say good managers good good um shepherds of an existing idea and I, without judging which one is better or worse, because I don't think there is a better or worse in that case. It just is, you know. Okay. Um, so that's that's very interesting to me that you would also like come back to that. Okay, given now that we have all this conflict in the country, your book is promising me, uh, Professor Golder, that I'll be able to handle these conflicts and these. So so uh, give us the premise of of how we deal with people that we find unreasonable that uh, you know in everyday life we run across people that we just don't either don't agree with or don't like or we're forced to interact with them without necessarily enjoying the interaction but we have to do it either for personal reasons or business reasons how do what is what are some techniques that you could share with us that would help us cope in those situations sure. okay the first thing john once you understand the reasons for the differences for example there are no two human beings on the planet that are alike. We are True. all different. Uh, we have individual differences. We have gender differences. We have personality differences. We have all, every single one of us has different life experiences that impact on, on us. And they form our opinions. And right. some, some of these opinions become our core values. And you can't change anybody's opinion. Uh, easily they have to change it themselves and you can't change their core values so when you realize that when you accept the fact that you can't change anybody's opinion or core value right i find it liberating because i don't have to waste my time changing your mind or your opinion because i'm not going to be able to do it so instead of doing that what i like to call 
um, traps to avoid when okay. you're having conversations with people. And, and so I'll give you my three traps to avoid. Sure. Because these are important. The intent impact trap. Hmm. We do it all the time. I do it. Everybody does it. I try to be mindful about it, but we very oftentimes will confuse intent with impact. So if it has a really negative impact on us, we immediately have this idea, well, he must have intended that. Like you're driving, you're driving your automobile in a nice way, and all of a sudden someone cuts you off in traffic. And so you immediately get really angry because right. he must have intended to kill me. And we get into this intent impact trap. And the, the truth of the matter is, John, you have no idea what in what's in the person's mind. Right. Uh, so don't confuse intent with impact. And you won't get mad when someone says something or does something that has a, a negative impact on you. So that's a that's a good trap to avoid. And the, these, which also goes with my second trap to avoid, which is judgment assumption trap. Okay. We're always doing it. We're making assumptions and we're forming judgments about what people do or say. Instead, um, I like to call it a learning opportunity. So okay. instead of judging what you say, I'm going to learn things. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that when I start to tell you about those things you should be using, the tools you should be using. And the, and the, the third one is the, what I call the binary trap, either or. People are always thinking, well, it's either, either you're either a conservative or you're a liberal. You're either red or blue. You're either this or that. We have to stop thinking in those terms because it's multiple. We're not simply, it's not simply black or white, John. It's there's many different variations in colors, and we have to stop thinking in terms of either or and start thinking of things. So <laughs> my tools that I use, and this is all part of the book, my my three tools that I use is open-mindedness. Mm. So you, if you keep an open mind, John, you can learn things. If your mind is closed, you're not going to learn anything. So That's true. you want to be open-minded. And the other thing that I find important is I like to have a curious mind, a learning mind. I'm not judging you. Nobody wants to be judged, John. They want to be heard. They want to be understood. They want to be respected and valued. They don't want to be judged. So instead of having a judgmental mind, you have a curious mind mm. to learn what this person is all about. And finally, gotcha. you want to work together whenever you have a difference of opinion, instead of having judgments, really what you're doing is you're trying to work together to find a solution. You know, all the things you say make sense to me in, in a lot of different ways, you know, um, like I was just thinking, like when you said, you know, it's not a binary choice, you know, uh, as a libertarian, I get that all the time, obviously, because when you don't belong to one of the two major tribes, and I'm assuming the green people get this or, the, you know, people who are outside that, uh, you know, the, the, the duopoly, so to speak, you know, well, if you're not for Trump, you must be for Biden. No, I kind of find both of them for various reasons to be distasteful. Um, or, or you know, um, see, by voting libertarian, you cost Trump a vote. What, how does that math work? You know, uh, well, you know, libertarians are just Republicans who like to smoke weed. Oh, really? 
<laughs> you know, like they're, they're always fascinated when I tell them I'm straight edge. I don't drink or do drugs, never have. You know, that's just my particular choice in life. Um, but as a libertarian, I'm like, hey, you should be able to do whatever you want, you know. So I always run into that So on a daily basis, you know. I, you know, so I fully understand that. And then your other point, which I found fascinating, is once you accept and, and you're not judgmental, it, it frees you to be able to work with the person. Um, I, I don't know if, if this is derivative of Skinner or Lovas or any of these uh, behavior modification folks, but um, in working with my son who is autistic, that was one of the things initially, we were lucky enough to meet with Dr. Lovas. And that was one of the things he explained to us um, that, um, it's not what you think makes your child happy. It's not how you think your child should be learning. It's accept how he learns and how he derives joy and then work with him to be able to facilitate that. And in the, and in the, in the process, he's going to make you happy because now, you know, it's a feedback loop, so to speak. Right. So very early on as parents, we learned like, okay, it makes him happy as long as he's not self-injurious to himself or others um, that you just say to yourself, okay, he enjoys sleeping on a sofa, not a bed. You know, at the end of the day, is that really a crime? No, it's not, you know? So why would I force him to be uncomfortable? And, you know, small things like that. But where I found it helped was in corporate America, that when I was still like running around companies and dealing with other people, you know, to learn what motivates people, what makes them happy, what, what they are there to work for, you know, 90% of the time, I'd say it's, 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 they're there to get paid. And you accept that. But there's some people who are there for recognition, or they're there for learning, or they're there for acceptance. And once you understand that, if you're their manager, or their colleague, once you understand that, a lot of this conflict goes away. And, and if you're able to deal with them on that basis, you know, to be able to say, okay, I'm not judging you for the fact that you don't care what you get paid, right? Why would I care? Oh, you want to be recognized for your, for your contributions. Okay, let's work on how you can get that, you know? And then all of a sudden, you know, you know my team is, is increasing its productivity. It's increasing its efficiency, right? So from a, from a very practical perspective, if you're a manager, if you're a business owner, if you're anybody who finds himself in a group of, of disparate individuals, I would think these techniques are very valuable because not only, not only do they keep the peace, so to speak, uh, but they help everyone produce more efficiently and in greater uh, volume, I would say. I mean, do you find yourself, have you consulted with businesses, for example? All the or, time. All the all time. The I, I almost knew what the answer was going to be before you answered. But um, so do you, do you find that once you explain this to folks that they're receptive to it, or is there still that resistance where, you know, it sounds good, but I don't know, is it Tony Robbins-ish type of thing? I don't know. Like what, how, what's the reaction you get from folks? Is there resistance? It varies. Mm. It varies. Like people vary. Now it's kind of interesting that you mentioned uh, we're all different and we all have different needs and we satisfy those needs in different ways. And when I talked earlier about assumption, that's what we should never do. Mm. You'd never know why a person is doing something. And if you make an assumption, you're never going to learn anything about why the person did what he did or what makes him happy. For example, your son. Mm. So instead of 
thinking, well, this wouldn't make me happy. Well, it doesn't matter. It's exactly. not about you. It's about him. So right. what you really want to do is you want to listen very carefully. You have a learning conversation. You listen very carefully and you say, okay, what is it that you need? And then you work to fulfilling the need and you solve the problem. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. But, God, listen, yeah. John, thank God we're all different. If yes. we were all the same, this would be a terrible, terrible world. Oh, it, yeah. it would be horrible. And I, that's why I'm, I, I think that's one of the main draws to libertarianism or I'm this far away from calling myself an anarchist to be, to be honest with you, I, you know, <laughs> but, but, but I haven't taken that final step, but the, one of the drawing points of libertarianism is exactly that. You know, we need the Da Vinci's of the world. We need the Archimedes of the world. We need the Elon Musk's and the Jeff Bezos, not because I think they're honorable people, but this is how society moves forward. It, like it's how we all, you know, their eccentricity, their genius, their differences are what lift all of us. Um, and and I think we all benefit by having a diversity of uh, of talents and personalities and people. And and of course that could also be bad in some ways, right? Because there are those who have psychopathy and whatnot that are different. And but but it doesn't mean you know that that in and of itself we all need to be homogeneous. I think that's a horrible proposition for mankind. Um, and unfortunately, though. I don't know, Professor, if you see it or not. I, I almost have a feeling like our society is is so desirous to move in that direction, where we're all the same, we're indistinguishable from one another. Uh, differences are to be eliminated, um, and I find that saddening, to be honest with you. That a that it's happening, and b that it would even be considered, you know, like that this would be a good thing. Um, it's you know, actually very dangerous. Let's go yeah. back to biology. Do you know what saves species? Oh, mutations. Yeah. Diversity. Diversity, yeah. Mutations, yeah. I mean, for example, bananas. There's only one variety of banana, and we're in trouble with bananas. The fact of the matter is the diversity actually is what's essential for the survival. For example, some, some humans are, are better in one environment rather than another environment. So right. the fact that you've got this diversity allows this our species the human species to go on when we become the same we're going to get ourselves into trouble because it's nature if you look at nature diversity is what really drives evolution I, yeah i i agree with you and and i think not too many people are willing to accept that and again it's it's to our detriment that people don't accept that um let me ask you this. Say you find yourself now, you're, you're open to, to your suggestions. You know, you try to understand the other person. Uh, you try not to be judgmental. You have an open mind. You're curious. But the person you find yourself, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, forced to, to interact with, say, in an office setting. Sure. You've tried. You've tried listening. You've tried not to be judgmental. But for whatever reason, that person apparently goes out of their way to irk you, regardless of intent. It, it, in your mind, is there such a thing as a, 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 an irredeemable situation where you say, look, these are just two personalities, they're two individuals that are just, they're oil and water, that's it. You know, they're not gonna get together. And at that point, 
like, is it part of that recommendation in somewhere in your philosophy to say, you know, it's best that we just kind of decide that one has to go or both have to go. Um, now, I'm, perhaps I'm speaking more from the position of, say, a manager or an office manager or, or business owner who has two talented employees, but you can't leave them in the same office at the same time. And maybe you can't afford to put them in separate locations or whatever. Um, how do you do you get to that conclusion or, or to that sort of decision point? Or in your mind, is it always a salvageable situation? Well, it's put it this way. It's always possible, but there are situations where it becomes very, very difficult. And sometimes the better course of action is just simply to separate. Because look at it this way. I can provide knowledge. Mm -hmm. I can provide information that would really solve your problems. But if you're not willing to absorb them, if you're not willing to accept those ideas, then there's really nothing I can do. It's sort of like you take a horse, you lead the horse to water. You can't make the, the water, you can't make the horse drink the water. You can only give the horse an opportunity to drink water. And there's nothing you can do if someone doesn't want to learn. They have a closed mind and they're not willing to bend. They're not willing to find common ground or reach common ground, then there are those few times that you just say, we did our best. Uh, it's just not going to work because we have oil and water. Exactly. Now, just out of curiosity, as, as sort of uh, from your experience, empirically speaking, do you find that there, like what percentage of cases end in that sort of result that in your experience, would you say, like, is it, is it that it's, I don't know, 5%, is it 50%, is it a quarter? Like, and I don't mean by precision, I just mean a gut feeling of like, once you've shown people these, these techniques, once you've explained to them, once you've provided them the knowledge, um, how many of your clients would you think come back and say, you know, we still had to get rid of X because they were, they, we led them to the water uh, professor and they just refused to drink. So, um, what happens in the, like what percentage would you say or, or fortunately and i say fortunately because never underestimate luck right right i could have been born anywhere in the world i could have been born to right. any parents in the world uh, but i was born here in the united states to two wonderful parents that uh, that gave me love and i grew and i nurtured but there are situations where it doesn't work but most of the time i would say almost without, I would say maybe 5% of the time, hmm. I can't get parties to a resolution. But most of the time, I work with people and solve their problems, resolve their conflicts and improve their relationships. Because that's really what my goal is. I go in, I say, look, I'm, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm there to provide information. And with this information, you may be able to solve the problem, resolve the conflict and improve the relationship. Because what you really want to do is you want to realize that you're only as good as your team and the weakest link, sometimes you just have to cut that link. Right. Um, but I work very, very hard to try to salvage all these situations. But there are times when you've got someone that might be very talented and really, really good, but doesn't fit into the culture of that particular company or organization. 
and the person is better off moving into a different place. Uh, it's better for the person and it's better for the organization. What I like to call it, it's a, it's a win-win. Right. It's not that the person is a bad person. The culture doesn't fit. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. I believe me. And I've found myself in those situations where I, I just from my own experience where I've gone to my management and said, this is the wrong fit. You know, I, I appreciate the opportunity, but you know, I'm not going to be the person who likes being in an office with pets and uh, like this loose form. You don't know where you're sitting every day. Like I, I don't mind a little bit of chaos, but um, this not knowing one thing to the next. And I mentioned earlier that I was a biologist. I'm a biologist by, by uh, training. Yes. Uh, my second degree is in computer science. So like by my education, you would think I'm a very, very ordered person, whatever the mindset that you described, which is like very conservative, you know, in terms of the way I was trained. Um, so there's, there is a part of my personality that does require some structure to the world around me. And there have been situations where I've been cast in because of my skill set with folks who have the complete opposite view of the world. And while I always try to be respectful and I certainly never try to change them in any way uh, because that would limit their productivity. Um, I, I had to come to the realization on my own that this is just killing me. I can't deal with this. So, uh, you know, I would make the point to have myself removed from that environment. But I, I always found myself to be and I don't mean this in a bragging sort of way, I kind of felt that I was in the rare sort of percentage of folks who realize that and say like, it's not, it's me, it's not them, you know? And it's like, I just don't fit here and we're, and it's okay, but we need to just divorce and, and for the better of all parties and for, well, you know. That's, that's, a, that's a good observation, John, because the fact that you don't fit into an organization doesn't mean you're not incredibly competent and incredibly skilled. It's just that what you want to do is take that skill set and go to a place where it's a better fit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea is always never to demean yourself or say, "Yeah, hey, look, I just can't cut it here." The idea is you're excellent. You just don't fit into this organization, and that's the kind of mindset I like to encourage. I like people to have a positive mindset about who they are, because at the end of the day, we, when you really think about it, John, we are all unique. We bring special characteristics and qualities to wherever we go. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that environment isn't receptive to that. And that's okay. I just move into a different environment where I work a little bit better, which is actually one of the reasons there is some polarization because mm. the, the the libertarian mindset for the most part and i you see we're all different so mm -hmm. you may be a libertarian that, that that has different ideas about things and i don't make assumptions about the fact that you may have that point of view so i have to say okay tell me what it is that you think about tell me what it is that 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 you are passionate about right and then we have a really useful conversation I have yet to find if you don't dig, if you dig hard enough, you can find something that the people f have in common. Mm -hmm. And what I try to do is I try to build on what people have in common. And that's how I get conflicts resolved and problems solved by working together. I said, look, what do you have in common? And the only thing they may have in common is maybe they both Boston Red Sox fans or <laughs> Yankees fans. But 
If I can find one thing in common, I use that to build a better relationship between the two parties. And it's, it's amazing how it works. When you find that common ground where the parties can say, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know you were a New York Yankees fan. I've been a fan for 40 years. And then you start yeah. to have a conversation and things start to loosen up. We have uh, this tendency, uh, for example, I call it, well, they, I don't call it, but the halo effect mm. and the demonizing effect. So if you like something about someone, you tend to have a better feeling about other aspects. And if you don't like somebody, right. you tend to dislike everything about them. So right, right. try to get away from the halo demonizing effect. Right. I, oh, you know, you just triggered a memory for me. I remember I was consulting once. Uh, I won't say the company, but it was a huge company. And um, I was consulting with them and I was just not getting anywhere with their CMO. You know, I was just sitting there and the pitch wasn't going well. And it wasn't a sales pitch in the sense that we were already hired. We were already consulting with them. But I guess the, the pitch for what we were proposing, you know, the, the course of action we were trying to convince them to take. And, you know, at one point he just said, okay, let's break for lunch because we're not getting anywhere or something. And as he moved away from the conference table, he walked behind me. And as I was shutting down my laptop, he saw my screensaver, which was um, a Ramones logo you know, the punk group Ramones. And as I was, and he might've caught a glimpse of it for maybe two seconds, you know, as we shot. And then as we're walking out of the room, he kind of pulled me aside and says, hey, I saw your 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 screensaver. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. I said, you know, I know it's not professional, but I didn't expect you to walk by at that point or something to that effect. And he said, no, no, no. I saw them at CBGB's in 1978. He goes, they're awesome. I've been a fan my whole life. And then we just started talking about, you know, the Ramones and then other groups in the genre, you know, and before you know it, he's like, hey, why don't we go out for a drink after the meeting? You could tell me more about your plan. You know, I know a good punk club. And, and if I'm not mistaken, it may have been, no, it wasn't in Boston. It was, it was somewhere else. But my point was totally unexpected common ground to then continue uh, talks, you know, and to continue the, at least the opportunity to persuade him uh, to my point of view, to the point of view that we felt was what was best for his company. So, you know, I understand exactly what you say. And sometimes, but of course, that demonizing effect can also uh, sort of creep in, right? I, I could just imagine if he was like a disco fan and he saw a punk thing, right? He would be like, oh my God, this guy is, <laughs> you know, he's too off the wall. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with him at all, right? So yeah. um, I definitely understand, but it, but I guess what you're, what you're sort of saying is go through the effort to find that common ground without necessarily uh, prejudging it and, and, and saying like, um, you know, or I have to look for X, right? It's more just, if I understood you correctly, Professor, it's more just being open to what they're saying and being receptive to what they're saying and being able to then extract that commonality, right? That's right. That's the learning conversation, not the judging conversation, right. not the assumption conversation, but it's the learning conversation. And it's you'll find that when you start to listen with an open mind and the other person, I've been heard, you're going to get a much more, uh, a fuller conversation. You're going to a richer conversation when people have been heard. <laughs> Instead of being judged, I'm being heard. And he understands me. 
And that social human connection is beautiful. It really is when you think about it. Yeah. We're social animals, John. We need each other. We can't function without other people. We need each other. So we just have to find where that common ground is. And that's when we really connect. Well, like Descartes said, how do we know we exist? Yeah. through the existence of others, right? So yeah. we do need it for no other reason. We need to know that we're alive by having others around us to interact with. So uh, that's that's a very interesting point. Have you hung up your shingle to be a marriage counselor, by the way? <laughs> no. It sounds to me like you should. Well, let me put it this way. I serve as a mediator. So I have dealt with uh, people seeking divorce mm. and trying to find some common ground and I've done that, but I haven't been a counselor. I haven't been a marriage counselor. I've been someone when the parties are saying like, let's see if we can right. work something out. They'll come to me and I'll try to help them find a solution, mm. whatever their problems are. Uh, and it's the reason for most problems is we judge each other. Uh, I can't change your opinions, John. You can't change my opinions. And when people try to do that, it gets really, nobody likes to be judged. So when you start to say, gee, the house is dirty, <laughs> immediately you're judging me as dirty. And it starts to escalate. Judging people causes escalation. Escalation causes anger. Anger causes disruption. And my, my goal is to try to say, look, nobody's perfect. That's a liberating thing, John. I, can uh, say, I agree. I'm not perfect. I, if I've offended you, I'm sorry that I've offended you truly because that was not my intent. Right. I, I love you. I want to share my life with you. I am sorry if you took it the wrong way. That was not my intention. And right. you have the conversation by not judging, but instead listening. And that's, that's so great. I, I really do. Uh, I find that very resonating with me. I do. I, I try to be like that. I'm not perfect either. I, I, there are times when obviously I'll fly off the handle, uh, I'm, but I'm trying to be aware of them and, and to understand where, when I'm getting to that point to be able to take a step back and uh, to do exactly what you said, you know, like, you know, there's, let's, let's work. Let's, I'm sorry if I offended you. And to be able to say that, I think is very powerful. Like you said, it's liberating. But in a very practical sense, I think it's also very powerful because at the end, that allows you to work towards your goal, whatever that goal was in your interaction with the other person, whether yeah. it's love or business or whatever, right? So absolutely. But the apology has to be genuine. It has yes. to be from a recognition that, oh my God, did I screw up? And I am so sorry. So when I'm doing my mediations and solving problems and helping people in the organizations, I keep these three things in mind because... This is who we are. We're, we're social animals and we're emotional animals. We need it all. And I recognize, and I'm mindful of it, that we have hidden biases that affect our opinions. Uh, things that we don't even know are affecting our opinions. So I have to be aware of them. What right. do, do, I, do I think women don't belong in these jobs? Do I, I, I don't consciously think I have biases, but I have no idea hidden from me might be biases that may impact my opinion. So I'm trying to be mindful about that. And I also am mindful about emotions impact our decisions. So I want to try to step back a little bit and not simply react, but think. Mm. And, and finally, 
remember this, John, the future is totally unpredictable. Mm. I mean, you expect the sun to come up tomorrow. Uh, you expect the sun to set in the, in the West, rise in the end. You, you expect certain things, but so many things about personal relationships, so many things about uh, things that you think about that are going to happen, they don't happen. Right. So if you think, if you realize that the future is unpredictable, you don't have to get crazy about planning and doing and because it's unpredictable. Hmm. Yeah, I, almost the same thing. I think uh, Joe Strummer once said the future is unwritten. And maybe I don't know if that's a more uh, palatable sort of thing. But um, I guess unpredictable means it's out of your hands, where, whereas unwritten means you could still sort of craft your fate. I, I, I don't know which one of the two I might prefer. But, uh, but I, the premise is, is almost exactly the same uh, that, you know, you should be able to to break away from your biases and 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 the worry about that and and and, and try to be the best you can, right? Well, I got to tell you a funny story uh, about a, a a great golfer from South Africa mm. uh, who was a professional golfer, and essentially uh, uh, Gary Player. Mm. So Gary Player is out and he's golfing and he he's off the green in a sand trap, and he hits the ball. And it goes right into the sand trap, it, from the sand trap right into the hole. So, oh some, guy, so, so some guy out in the uh, yelling, "Lucky shot, Gary!" And Gary Gary Paler turns around with his South African accent. And he says, "You know, it's a funny thing. The more I practice, the luckier I get." <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you can, in some respects, make it possible or at least increase the chances yes. that you're going to have a better future by preparing by practicing by doing things that may lead to the possibility of a situation that you want to see happen you, it, things don't happen by themselves you've got to have sometimes have to make it happen right by working toward that goal that's that's a great sentiment i love that that you know and I also love the fact that you're that you you acknowledge that we're all living in a society. We have to interact with other people for the most part. We need to interact with more. So the ability to do so, even if you disagree with them, even if you say I'm never going to run into this person again, whatever the case may be, to be able to be civil, uh, and I think that is part of the polarization, without a doubt. And and um, the the inability to see individuals as opposed to groups uh you know so i do agree with you on that all right doctor this was uh professor this was fantastic i love this conversation um as we're nearing the end of the show i want to hit you up with what i typically do of my guests is ask them some silly questions so feel free to answer as you see fit um first of all what is your favorite uh author who is your favorite author and or philosopher that you would say you you either enjoy or was most impactful uh, on your in your life or career. That's a great question. Uh, and when I was in the first grade, I got my first library card, uh, and I said, "Wow, this is amazing! I have a library card, and I can get all these books." Mm. I was so excited. So when you tell me who my favorite author is, I just enjoy reading and books that I usually read are nonfiction books and they're books 
to make me think, to improve my life, to understand what motivates people, to understand. So when you talk about my favorite authors, um, I don't know if I can tell you I have a favorite author. I, I I can tell you that I've had some, I've read a, a number of books on psychology, uh, a number of books on conflict resolution, mediation. I've read these books to learn, to basically try to improve the quality of my life and to helping other people improve the quality of their lives. So any book that does that, and I, there's just so many that it's hard mm. to say. As far as, uh, I, I, I do admire Ralph Nader as a consumer advocate. He was someone when I was in law school, I would look up to as the kind of lawyer I wanted to be to basically to do justice. Right. And I did that in my early career when I represented workers in individual employment cases and employment discrimination. So I represented workers before hmm. I became a person uh, resolving conflict. So I, I admired Ralph Nader as, as an advocate, someone who was doing it for the right reasons, practicing law for the right reasons. So, but philosopher, oh my God, there's so many brilliant philosophers, mm -hmm. like Plato, Socrates, you know, start from there. Then work your way uh, down. <laughs> no, no, seriously, there's just so many brilliant psychologists over the years and, and philosophers over the years that have had an impact. And the thing is, John, you just don't know how much of an impact they have until one day you said, you know, I didn't realize what an impact. I had a great English teacher mm. who was when I was in high school that encouraged me to write, encouraged me to develop my brain, to, to expand my knowledge. I just, uh, but it's a good question. It's a yeah. good question. I, I like it for me. You're right. And, and I, I always told my guests, feel free to narrow it down to two or three people if, if you want, but that was a good answer. So uh, you just enjoy reading and you enjoy um, learning about how to help others, how you could be of value, how could you, you could be useful to others. And, and I think that's just a, a great position to be in. Um, have you ever read anything by Thomas Sowell? Yes. S-O-W-E-L-L. Yeah. I think he's a brilliant writer. I, he, he's, I enjoy his books immensely. Yeah, he's he's brilliant. Um, he is also, I think, um, well, you know, he studied under Friedman, you know, and the 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 thing I like about both those guys is they take a professorial approach in the sense that they understand that perhaps their first role is to be a teacher. So when they explain things, I can almost picture myself sitting in their class being a graduate student of theirs, as opposed to the more fire and brimstone political philosophers or econo economists like uh, Paul Krugman, for example, I, I don't, uh, without judging what he has to say, the way he delivers his, his, his positions is almost dictatorial, you know, in, in the way he does it. But when you listen to a soul, certainly he's opinionated and certainly he has a point of view, but it comes across as very professorial to me. You know, uh, Milton Friedman, I remember sitting for hours watching all his YouTube videos and reading his books and just saying, I learned something. I, I, I honestly learned something because he took the time to explain it and he explained it the way he would to his, and of course they were both teachers at Stanford. So you know, so to me, yes, yeah, soul, one of my favorites, and also tends, not always, but tends to align with my personal philosophy. So, uh, yeah, definitely. Okay. You know, yeah, I'm wait, sorry, go ahead. Know, 
we're egocentric. So yes. so many people don't like to have someone find out that they're mistaken. But there's two really interesting um, Kahneman. He was a, he's an amazing, uh, just an amazing guy. And he used to look for things that would find him wrong, mm. satisfied. I, I don't want to be right. I want to find out why I'm wrong. And he'd always be searching how to find out why I'm wrong, which mm -hmm. I thought was really brilliant. And uh, John Maynard Keynes mm. had a wonderful saying that, I, that really sticks with me. And he said, uh, somebody was asking him how he changed his opinion about right. economic theory. And he said, well, sir, when the facts change, I change my opinion. Yes. And I, that stuck with me. I like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great rejoinder, actually, you know, to, to you know, it's interesting to me that uh, when I was uh, when I first started working on Wall Street, um, the first uh, manager I had was a stereotypical old New York uh, Jewish banker, you know, uh, and, and like, I, but to, I love him like no other man other than my father, to be honest with you. And he, he saw me being transitioning from being a scientist to being a Wall Street guy. And he saw that I was struggling. So he, he and he always called me professor for some reason. So you, and he had that stereotypical New York accent. He would say, professor, let me tell you something in your career. Make sure that you're the dumbest person in the room. Surround yourself with people smarter than you. And I never really took it to heart until I left his employ. And then I realized what he meant. And then I realized the wisdom of what he told me. And ever since then, and that was a good 30, 35 years ago, I've been constantly paying that forward to anybody that I've, that I've mentored or that I've had the privilege of, of being their manager is to tell them, um, don't feel like you have to surround yourself with people that you find either intellectually or personality wise inferior to you. That's not a recipe for success. That's not a recipe for growth. Make sure that you hire people that you're going to learn from as well, because they need your experience, they need your leadership, they need your guidance, you need their energy, you need to, to your point, prove me wrong about something. And let's then work to make it that we're all right. So, and then poor old Saul, like he went in it to this day, when I tell that story, people start laughing, because they laugh <laughs> at the accent and the gate, right. But it's I found a it a yeah. story. It's yeah, a story. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you speak. Know? I'm sorry, speaking of accents. What part, what part of Massachusetts are you from? Boston now. Now I'm downtown Boston. I, I grew up in Chelsea, which was a suburb of Boston, uh, about two and a half miles, square miles. And uh, I uh, moved to Boston after my kids got out of school and uh, left home. Okay. Because I love Boston. But I, you, you, what you said about the gentleman that you, that mm -hmm. was a mentor to you, it, leads me to just talk very briefly about sure. authoritarianism mm. and the people who are authoritarian personalities surround themselves with people who are less intelligent which is really their downfall it's the people who surround themselves with people who are more intelligent who is smarter than from you can learn that's the person you want to be your leader not the one that has because the authoritarian doesn't want anybody that's smarter than he is 
which means he's not going to be getting good information or she is not going to be getting good information. And it's going to lead us down a very bad path. I, I agree with you. And, and um, I, to this day, when I find resistance to that, if I'm, if I'm interviewing with a client or something um, and I find out that they, you know, because sometimes you'll get feedback on that process. And one of the process of feedback you get sometimes is, well, I don't like it when you say that you want to be the dumbest person in the room. I, I don't, I don't, why would I want my manager to be the dumbest person in the room? And I said, all right, you know, um, thank you. I don't know if we're a fit culturally, you know, and, and it, like you said, there's no point in trying to change somebody's mind to that, you know, and, and I think that because those people are always, always going to be self-conscious and they're always going to be looking over their shoulder um, rather than accept that, as you said, this is how we, this is how we progress, you know? So um, final question, Professor, what do you do for recreation? <laughs> what do I do for recreation? Well, I play tennis. Okay. I golf occasionally. Uh, I read books. Um, I um, have a book that I published uh, with West, uh, Thompson West, and I have to do the supplement every six months. So I spent some time researching cases in the, the title of the book is Labor and Employment Law Compliance and Litigation. It's a two volume set. Not that anybody wants to buy it except law professors. I, I was going to say it sounds like a textbook, right? Absolutely. It's yeah. law professors, uh, law firms that, that buy it. The book is actually designed for lawyers uh, who practice in those areas of law. It's, it's five different chapters and they all cover most of the law that deals with workers and workers' rights. But now um, I have a, a new passion and we all should have a passion, John. My new passion is to, to, to spread the word since this book of getting people to understand uh, why we're polarized and how we can fix the problems. There's an organization called Braver Angels. I don't know whether or not you've heard about it, but I they no. discovered they discovered me, and because my book is reaching common ground, and they are an organization, nonprofit organization, and they're trying to get people on the they call them Reds and Blues, and they're trying to get them to work together to solve problems. Uh, and it's a wonderful organization. I've been spending time as one of their ambassadors and going around talking at libraries and other, other venues to encourage people to understand why the polarization and how to fix the polarization. That's what I've been doing. That sounds great. And why don't, we, why don't you give them a plug? Do they have a website that, that the folks can go to? Check them out. Uh, that's a good one, yes. Um, it is called Braver Angels. And if you go to braverangels.org, okay. you'll find the organization and you'll find that they discuss uh, things like gun control, abortion, and they have people from both sides, the reds and the blues, and they have civil conversations about their differences. It's really a very unique organization. And of course, you can buy my book, Reaching Common Ground. Uh, you can find it on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold, you can find my book. And I will tell you, if you read my book, if you understand what I've written in this book, in my book, and use these tools that I talk about in the book, 
you will improve your relationships, you'll have fewer conflicts, and the conflicts you have, you'll be able to resolve them much more successfully. That is a wonderful note to end on, both folks to buy your book so you can you can resolve conflict in your life and, and learn to work with each other and to, and to embrace each other's uh, a positive, positive natures all the way around. Also, braverangels.org, uh, bringing people together to try to find uh, purple solutions. If we mix blue and red, right? Maybe we get some purple <laughs> solutions. Uh, so, but anyway, thank you, Professor Fred Golder, for joining us today on the show. Really appreciate your time. Please, I hope you'll co consider coming back in the near future. Maybe if the, as situations warrant, we'd love to have you again. You're, you're such a pleasant person to talk to. I really appreciate you coming. And for everyone out there, join us again on the for the next episode of The Big Questions with John, when we're going to have an equally uh, interesting person to chat with. So until then, peace out. Take care. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me.